Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, please. And if you'll open them to Matthew chapter 5. Fifth chapter of Matthew. It's rare that I would uh, begin a message on Sunday morning asking you to daydream. Some of you, uh, as I look out over the congregation about halfway through the message, you're, I can tell by that blank stare on your faces that you're a million miles sometimes away from what I'm trying to say here. But today I do want to start by asking you to daydream just a little bit. I want you to transport yourself to living in the Middle East. Think about living in a little country that's surrounded by enemies on all sides. Think about being from an oppressed race of people that has enemies all over the world, a a race that's looked down upon and largely hated by everyone else in the world. Think about being from a people group that throughout its history has had multiple attempts at total extermination. Where would you be if you were in that place? I think most of you probably recognize that I'm Speaking of Israel, I'm talking about the Jewish people. We don't have to read the Bible, and we don't have to get a history book out. We don't have to go to an encyclopedia to find out how much the Jews are hated. You can pick up your newspaper just about any day. You can watch television, watch the news on television. You can listen to the radio during the commute, and you'll hear news story after news story of violence that comes out of the land of Israel. We know that there are terrorist organizations that have made it their stated goal to totally obliterate the Jewish people. And much of the terrorism that is experienced around the world upon American people is because of our support for a Jewish homeland. And if we were to withdraw our support as Americans from the Jewish nation today, from Israel... I have no doubt in my mind that we would be well on our way to bringing our troops home from Iraq and Afghanistan. So if you were an Israelite or an Israeli, a Jew living in Israel today, you would have a steadfast determination to keep your land. You would lash out at anyone who tried to take that land away from you. Now I want you to rewind the clock 2,000 years and let's go back to the time of Jesus. You're a Jew living in Israel But you're in occupied territory. For centuries, there have been people that have occupied your homeland. Someone else has ruled over you. But you have hope because you believe in God. God has given you a book that you can read that tells you that the land has been promised to you and that it will be yours forever. And so you're always looking for a Savior. And I don't mean Savior in the sense that you're looking for someone to save you from your sins, but you'd be looking for someone who would be a political savior, someone who could deliver you from the oppression of your enemies. You have hope because you believe that there is someone who is coming. And there you can see a little bit, perhaps, the idea of hope that was placed in Jesus. Someone comes along who's far different from anyone that you've ever met before. Someone who has supernatural abilities. And if you were a Jew living at that time, then what you would think, here is the person that God has promised. Here is the person that will deliver us from our oppressors. will come out from under the hand of Rome because of this person. And there were people who followed Jesus around with those kinds of expectations. But when one day Jesus gathered the multitudes, he gathered the crowds unto him, he sat down by the Sea of Galilee and he began to teach the people and he taught them about kingdom living. And what Jesus had to say totally turned everything that they thought upside down. 
What Jesus said was not about the military. He didn't speak about covert operations. He didn't talk about delta forces that would come in and help take over the land. They were sayings that were the exact opposite of what people expected because Jesus was teaching eternal truths about an eternal kingdom. Now, we're just getting started in this study of those eternal truths that Jesus preached. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, and when he began that sermon, he began with a group of sayings that are called the Beatitudes. And what that means are blessings. He tells us how that people can be happy living in his kingdom. There are blessings. And it's a kingdom that has lived in this world, but it's not of this world. That's what we're talking about as we go into the Sermon on the Mount. I'd like you to take your Bibles now. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, stand with me please as we read God's Word. And Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse number 1, as I said, we're just starting into our study of the Beatitudes. Today we're studying the third Beatitude. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. When he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we ask that you would bless the message that you would speak to our hearts. Help us to understand what Jesus means when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Bless everyone who hears today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The third beatitude is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. You know, I can just hear the rumblings in the crowd as Jesus made that statement. And they were already reeling. I'm sure the crowd was already buzzing by the first two things that Jesus said. The first beatitudes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he followed that up with, blessed are they that mourn. And now he comes with a third saying, something that will bring happiness and blessedness to people. He says, blessed are those that are meek. Those are things that don't add up. Those are things that don't mesh. Happiness, blessedness could never be built on such principles as that. Now, we're going to talk about this today, and we want to understand a little bit better about what the people at Jesus' time thought that meekness meant. And then we're going to look into the real meaning of Jesus' statement. Now, first, we we begin today with the mistaken about meekness. Who were those that were mistaken about meekness? Well, it was probably every person in the crowd. I mean, even the disciples that, that Jesus had just called, they weren't really too sure about this. And so it was Jesus' purpose to call his disciples unto him, to bring him up on this place, on this mountain beside the Sea of Galilee, and begin to teach them. And as he taught them... There was the idea that the crowds would begin to separate, that people would begin to fall off, that there were sayings that Jesus would give that these people could not live by, they would not live by, and then Jesus would weed out those who would be in his kingdom. So who is it, who is in that crowd that was mistaken about meekness? Well, first we could say Pharisees. Many of you have heard of the Pharisees. We'll talk about them as we go through the book of Matthew. But the Pharisees desired a miraculous kingdom. The Pharisees were looking for a deliverer who had come in a great display of miracle-working power. Now, they'd read about this in the Old Testament, and the terminology that they used was that of the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. And they thought that the Messiah 
which means the anointed one. This is the one that God would send. And what he would do in a great display of supernatural power, he would throw off the yoke of Rome. Now, Jesus at first seemed to fit that bill, although his methods seemed to be a little bit unconventional to the, conventional to the Pharisees. The Messiah, they thought, was someone who should look like them, someone who taught the same things that they taught. And certainly, he would be someone who would back up the very same things they'd been teaching the people for years. But that's not what Jesus said. When he began to talk to them, Jesus' teachings attacked this group of people at the very root. He said, you're sinners, you're, you're part of the problem. And so they were at odds with Jesus despite all of the miracles. And so he couldn't be the Messiah that they expected. There was a second group there, and that's the Sadducees. They desired or were looking for a materialistic kingdom. The Sadducees were not the same type of goody-two-shoes that the Pharisees were. They were mainly concerned about money and about prestige and about power. And so they were shaken by that very first beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They didn't really understand what he meant by being poor in spirit. They just knew that you cannot associate the word poor with anything that has to do with a blessing. And so they weren't about to accept Jesus' teachings about meekness. You see, the Sadducees were the elite These were the ones that occupied the priest office, the high priest office, particularly at the time of Jesus, because that office at that time was chosen by the Roman government. And so these were people that really didn't mind collaborating with Rome, making a peace with Rome. That was all right, just as long as it would line their pockets. So they weren't about to accept any kinds of teachings about meekness. Then there was a third group that was there, and these are the zealots. And the zealots were those who desired a militant kingdom. Now, here is a group of people that wanted to overthrow Rome at all cost. So what they were doing was looking for a following. They were trying to gather people up that would join them in an uprising. One of Jesus' original 12 that he chose to be his apostles was from that group, Simon Zelotes, which means Simon the Zealot. Now, at the time that Jesus was preaching, that we're reading here, the Zealots were not a strong political party, not at that time, but the seeds of their uprising were beginning to sprout. And so they would later become a very force, a very good for big force in the land of Israel. Now, these are really a group of people that a few years later built a place called, the, or, or occupied, I should say, the Fortress of Masada. That was a palace that uh, Herod had built, a fortress on top of a mountainside near the Dead Sea. And we have a couple of pictures of that today when we were in Israel. I took many, many pictures of this place, Masada. It's high up on this mountaintop. Give me that next picture too. And there you can see uh, what an impregnable fortress that it was. A few years later, the zealots took over this place and they occupied Masada for about seven years. And it wasn't until the Roman general Flavius Silvus was able to penetrate the walls of this fortress that they were able to reclaim it for Rome. So these zealots hung out there. It was a base of operations for them so they could attack Rome. Well, finally, uh, Flavius Silvus was able to break down the wall and to breach the wall, get into the city. And when they did, they found out that all 936 of the inhabitants that were in Masada had committed mass suicide. They were not about to surrender to Rome. So when Jesus began to speak about meekness, 
This was not a group that accepted that kind of teaching. You can't be meek and have a kingdom. But then there's one other group in Israel at the time, and these were the Essenes. The Essenes desired a monastic kingdom. And really, Jesus would not have addressed this group because they weren't there. These were people that had separated themselves from the rest of Israel, and they lived in their own little world. They were in a place called Qumran, that's near the Dead Sea, and they're the very same people that preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were a separated people. They weren't in the Jewish population. They pulled themselves apart, and they were looking for the coming kingdom, but they were looking for a kingdom for them. And so they weren't preparing anybody else. They were just content that they would go into the kingdom that's coming. So here you see the groups that are operating at the time of Jesus. In some way, all of them were looking for deliverance from Rome, and there were very few of them that were actually looking for a kingdom in the way that Jesus wanted them to. But Jesus began to teach them the truth about God's kingdom, and what that did, it just literally turned upside down every idea that they had. So they were mistaken about meekness. Now, let's come back then to what Jesus really meant when he spoke about meekness. And one way that we can do that is to describe the mistakes about meekness. The Beatitudes are given in such a way that they begin to build on one another. The first Beatitude was, blessed are the poor in spirit. And when we studied that, we discovered that what that means is the person who is poor in spirit is one who realizes his great abject spiritual poverty, complete spiritual poverty. It's a negative beatitude because it forces us to realize what our real standing is before God, and that is that we're nothing without Christ. We have no hope. We have nothing that we can offer. When it comes to righteousness and it comes to holiness, we don't have any. We are completely spiritually bankrupt. And that's what we call our depravity. We're depraved in our will, depraved in our conscience. We're depraved in our mind. And so there's nothing that would enable us to look up to God, to reach up to God, and expect that God would do anything for us because we are nothing. We cannot help ourselves. And when you realize that, it moves you into the second beatitude that Jesus gave. Blessed are they that mourn. And the reason they mourn is because of that deep spiritual poverty. They realize that they are sinners. It's a humbling effect. We bow before God. We mourn. We're humbled because of this spirit that's in us that can do nothing towards God. So we have no inner strength in us. The world is a cheerleader that tells us, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it if you put your mind to it. But we can't do it. Without God, you can't do it. There's nothing in you, nothing in your heart, nothing in your body, nothing in your thinking. And so you mourn because of that sinful condition of the way that you stand before God. You realize your sins are against a holy God who does nothing but demand complete, perfect righteousness. So you're ashamed when you realize this. You're humiliated by it. And when you get to that place, you're ready to come to the next saying about happiness. Happiness, blessedness comes to those that are meek. This means those who are subdued, those who have surrendered all hope of themselves and have come to completely depend upon God. Now, this is a beatitude that's actually positive because while it does force us to look downward upon ourselves, it also forces us to look upward to the holiness of God. And so we must humble ourselves beneath him. Now, let me show you a couple of mistakes that are made about meekness. First, meekness is not weakness. 
And most people think that way. They, they think that a person who is meek must be a weak person. And, and so the words are synonymous. Meekness, weakness, they mean the same thing. To be meek, they think, is to cower down. It means to become a whipping post to people. And so meekness could not measure up to those who are looking for a coming kingdom, looking for the defeat of Romans. Meekness cannot fit that picture. And today, this is the way that we think. If you use that word meek, you think of somebody who's a panty waist. You think of somebody who, who, who can't defend themselves and won't defend themselves. They won't stand up for their rights. And so we're the opposite of meek, we think. We're not going to let anybody overrun us. We will stand up for our rights. We're number one. No one's going to ever call us meek or weak. But Jesus didn't use the word meekness in that way. The best way that you could describe his terminology is, is power under control. This is what meekness means, power under control. It's a word that was used when you broke an animal, like a horse has to be broken. You know, a wild horse has a lot of power. We, we still use the word horsepower as a measurement of the, of the amount of power that an engine produces. A horse has to be broken. You have to harness that power. It's no good to us if the will of the horse is not broken until it comes under authority and the power is harnessed, it's subdued, and comes under the control of the rider. Now, let's suppose that God gave you his unbridled power, so to speak, and let you use your, his power any way that you wanted. Well, it wouldn't be long before Christians would become very prideful people and we'd use our, our power in the wrong way because we still have a human nature. It wouldn't be long until Christians would become tyrants. And so what has to happen is the power that God gives us must be a power that is under control. It is a power that has to be under his authority because when it is, we begin to channel the power that God gives in the direction that he chooses and using that for his service, working for his people, working for his causes. It has to be a power that's under authority. So Jesus said, blessed are the meek. And what he means is that they don't repay injustice in in kind. Jesus was a great example of those that are meek. He was treated scornfully when he was abused, when he was beaten, when he was crucified, He did not exercise his power. So we know the scripture says he could have called legions of angels to deliver him, but he didn't. And you know why? It's because he was harnessed. His power was harnessed by his love. His power was harnessed by his objective. And his objective was to glorify his heavenly father and do what God had sent him to do. And that was to come into the world to be a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was a meek person, but he wasn't a weak person. He channeled and used the authority that God gave him in the right way. So never think that meekness equates with weakness because Christians are never weak when they are meek. There's no sense in which you could say that uh, these Christians who down throughout history were willing to go to persecution, willing to be burned at the stake, willing to be killed for the cause of Christ. You could not call a Christian like that either meek or weak. I mean, you could call them meek, but not weak. Now, who is the person that is, that is meek? Is it the person who persecutes? Is it the person who torches someone at the stake because it has to be their way or no way? Or is it the person who surrenders completely to the will of Christ? He is torched for his belief. He will not give up. He will not relent. That's the person who is meek, but he is in no sense weak. Weakness gives in. Weakness re- relents. It reacts. It retracts. 
The meekness has to be harnessed to do all things for God and none for self. And then meekness is not niceness. Do you know why I say that meekness is not niceness? Because we know a lot of people that are nice, but they really don't fit the picture or the Bible's description of being meek. Niceness is something that you can do in your flesh. I mean, you could go so far as to say even animals sometimes are nice. You might have a dog that's very nice to you, but the neighbors will bite your leg off if it gets beyond his fence. He's not a very nice dog. Niceness is something that's a human trait sometimes. Some people are just kind of born with that ability to be nice to other people, to be kind to other people. But meekness is not that way. And it's not that way because meekness is something that is humiliating. Meekness is something that puts us down in one word in a certain way to speak. Meekness means that we're not asserting ourselves. So what we do naturally is that we always look out for ourselves. We're always number one. We're not going to let anyone intimidate us. And if you say something bad about me, if you impugn my character, then what I will do, I will go into a tirade to defend myself. Now, meekness is humbling because it says, there's nothing that's in me that's worth defending. I'm a sinner against God. There's nothing in me and myself that's worth defending. You know, I want to throw something in here to the message. This wasn't part of it, but I just heard this yesterday, I think it was. I, I was at home, and, and, uh, and Aiden, our little grandson, was sitting there. They're, they're watching Mickey Mouse or something on TV, and, and there was a commercial that came on about, about Disney, Disneyland, Disney World, all that kind of thing. And there was a young man there, uh, I guess, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, and he has a song called Celebrate You. And the song was all about celebrating you. Be what you want to be. Be what you are. Take confidence in yourself. That is exactly the opposite of what Jesus tells us to do. We don't celebrate us. We celebrate Almighty God. We celebrate Jesus and what he's done for us. We don't lift up ourselves. So meekness is not this human trait. And I like what one commentator said about this. He said, we all of us prefer to condemn ourselves rather than to allow somebody else to condemn us. I say of myself, I am a sinner, but instinctively I do not want anybody else to say that I'm a sinner. That is the principle introduced at this point. Meekness is not a natural human trait because meekness is humiliating. And probably the toughest part that there is in getting people ready to receive the gospel of Christ is to understand that they are sinners. They don't like to be told that they're sinners. And so when you tell a person he is a sinner, the first thing that he does, he throws up the defenses. And he says, yes, I can admit that I'm a sinner, but I'm not all that bad of a sinner. There are other people that I know that are worse than I am And I'm better than a lot of my friends, so I'm really okay. I'm not that bad of a sinner. I'm really good enough. All in all, I'm really good enough. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. And he means that they're blessed because they're not going to throw up those defenses. They accept how God sees them. They understand how God sees them. And they look only to God, and they never look to themselves. You won't hear this kind of preaching in most places, certainly not in a place where it talks about self-esteem all the time. They're not going to tell you to be a meek person, but that's what Jesus says. Now, let me go on here, because the Bible has some examples of people that were meek. Next is the men of meekness. Now, for the sake of time, I I could go on and I could give you an example like David, for instance. I mean, I, I, I could give you many examples Uh, David, for instance, we talked about him last week. He was a man of meekness. He was also a man of power, but he submitted to God's power. 
So we'll look at two others. David, we'll come back to him and some of the other Beatitudes. But let's look at Abraham. Abraham left it all to Lot. Abraham is a great example of a man of power. But when it came down to doing the right thing, Abraham was willing to back down on his power and show his meekness. Abraham was a man that was so blessed by God that you could almost call him a country to himself. Abraham had riches. Abraham had servants. He had sheep. He had cattle in abundance. Abraham was so powerful that when he needed to, he could call his servants together. He had so many they could muster up his own army to defend himself. Now, Lot, Abraham's nephew, on the other hand, was a nephew that we could call a mooch. I mean, basically everything that he had came because of his association with Abraham. So he was one of those relatives that was just always around. He really wasn't a contributor. He was always a taker, but he's always around. Does anybody have any relatives like that? Okay, you don't need to raise your hand. Abraham was a lot greater than Lot. If not just because of his wealth, he was greater because he was the elder. Under their economy, the way that they live, the elder is always the superior person. You always defer to your elders. Now, that's something that's kind of lost on society today. You don't see that too much anymore because it's not parents that actually run things anymore. It's kids. Kids run the household. Whatever the kids say, that's what we're going to do. That's a message for another time, so I'll leave it there. But, But there did come a time when Abraham's herds were so great and Lot had been so blessed by his association with Abraham that there began to be a strife between their two companies, between their two servants. So they began to argue over things like water rights. And they argued over things like the pasture land. And it became such a contention between the two and they were both so mighty in their own sphere that they could not live together. And so they decided to split up. Abraham was the one who had been given the inheritance of all the land that was before them. Everything was given to Abraham, from the lush green valleys of the plains to the rocky hillsides. Everything belonged to Abraham. Now, when it came time for them to divide, Abraham did not make his choice and then say to Lot, you have to take what's left over. But instead, what Abraham did, he said, Lot, you can take the first choice. Well, Lot was not like Abraham because he saw an opportunity. And so given half a chance, Lot's idea was to assert himself. And so he said, here's what I'll do. I'll take the well-watered plains of Jordan, and you can have the rocky hillsides, Abraham. And Abraham was okay with that because Abraham knew his sufficiency was from God. Everything that he had, God gave. So he knew that he would be blessed by God. But Lot was different. He knew that he had to take the choice of the best land because everything he had depended upon Abraham. His sufficiency was Abraham. And so when he split up, he decided, I'll take the well-watered plains of Jordan. So Abraham's meekness was shown even though in the way that even though he was greater in riches, he's greater in the promise, he's greater because he's the elder, yet he gave up his rights. He didn't assert his power. Now, the second example that we have in Scripture is a person that the Bible says was the meekest of all men. And that would be with the exception of Jesus, of course. The meekest of all men, that was Moses. Moses left it all up to the Lord. Now, I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to the Old Testament book of Numbers. First five books of the Bible written by Moses. He gives us the narrative, and the Numbers is the fourth book fourth book from the beginning of the New Testament. I want you to look at chapter 12, verse number 3. 
And keep your Bible open there because we're going to read a few verses in a moment. But Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it starts there in 3 this way. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Now that statement is made about Abraham because of an incident that occurred between Abraham and his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. What Miriam and Aaron had decided was uh, that they had the right to discern God's will. They had the right to lead the God's people as well as Moses did. They could give instructions to the people. Now think for a moment how that Moses communicated with God. In those days, there was no completed Bible, so you just didn't pick up the Bible and begin to read what God wants you to do. But rather, God would speak to his people through prophets. The book of Hebrews tells us that God spoke in various times and various ways to the prophets. And the way that God spoke to prophets was through visions and dreams. But Moses was like any other prophet, because when God wanted to speak to him, he didn't speak to him in visions and dreams. Instead, God came and he spoke to Moses face to face. Now, here's how God rebuked Miriam and Aram. Look look at verse number 4 in Numbers 12. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out, ye three, under the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him I will speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. So Moses was very different from all the other prophets. And you can see that this very easily could have been a source of pride for Moses. He could have pounded his chest and said, God speaks to nobody like he speaks to me. God comes and he speaks to me face to face. But Moses didn't do that because Moses was not about asserting his authority and he wasn't going to do it in the wrong way. Now Moses was so meek that there was another time that he was encouraged to keep other prophets from speaking. Now this is an incident that occurred just previous to the one we just read. So if you'll look back in chapter 11 in Numbers, there are some people that were prophesying and Moses was told them to tell them to stop. And they said, Tell them not to prophesy because they were afraid that Moses would lose some of his authority. So here's how Moses responded to this. This is in Numbers chapter 11, beginning of verse 25. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spake unto him, that is unto Moses, and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it to the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went not out under the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, and one of his young men answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. Now listen to what Moses says. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses was not about asserting his own authority. God spoke to him in a special way. God enabled him to perform miracles. 
There were all those plagues that Moses brought upon Egypt through the power of God. There was Moses who parted the Red Sea. Moses who brought water out of the rock. And yet here is Moses. If there was anybody that could claim superiority, it was him. But his meekness would not allow him to misuse his power and authority. He was subdued. And that's because it was all about God and not about him. And that's what meekness is. Spiritual poverty focuses on our sinfulness while meekness focuses on the holiness of God. So we don't glory in ourselves. There's nothing in us that we can boast about. We do not assert ourselves. It's what it means to be meek. Now lastly this morning, we need to look at the promise that goes with meekness. It comes in the last part of the verse. Number four today is the mapping of meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Pull out a globe, spin it around, place your finger on any place of that globe, and if you are a child of God, it all belongs to you. You will inherit the earth. Now there's a sense in which we inherit the earth right now, that we're owners of the earth, and that is a spiritual sense, this an ethereal sense. It's not something you can actually tangibly put your hands on at this time. It's a spiritual thing. But when you have this, when you know this, you're satisfied. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now turn that around. And in effect, you could say, we have gained everything because we have not lost our souls. We have everything. We're perfectly satisfied with that because the very best thing that we can have is Jesus Christ. And if you own him, if you know him, if he's in you, then you're satisfied. You don't need anything else. You're satisfied just by the knowledge of knowing Christ. But the scriptures actually go beyond that spiritual sense. Because Jesus says there is coming a kingdom. Now, for those that were looking for a physical kingdom, Jesus is not saying there will be no kingdom. He's just saying it's not going to be gained in the way that Pharisees, Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes would imagine. It won't come that way. It comes to those who are already in Christ. They're already in the spiritual kingdom. And these are people that have learned how to live in that spiritual kingdom. Now, the kingdom is not for everybody. We've already said that in the first two Beatitudes that we studied. Not everybody is going to be in this kingdom. There is a kingdom that's coming, but it's coming only for those who have received Christ by faith. They will be in the physical kingdom that comes. Let me give you three things about the kingdom, then we'll close today. First is the rights of God. To give an inheritance, you have to own something. I can't leave you the Hearst Castle when I die, because I don't own the Hearst Castle. But God owns everything, and everything is God's to give. He has the rights to it. The second thing is the riches of God. One of these days, there are a lot of people who are going to be shocked when they have to give up all of their property rights, and they have to give it back to the one who really owns it all. You know, today we talk about wealth redistribution, president kind of let the cat out of the bag back in the days preceding the election. He talked about his goal of wealth redistribution. Now, that's a prerogative of a monarchy, not a democracy. You can get that out of socialism. You can get it out of communism, but you can't get it out of a capitalistic democracy. That's impossible. But God is king of his kingdom. 
And there is going to come a great wealth redistribution. And what I mean is that God's going to take it all away from them and he's going to give it all to us. That's a plan I can live with. The riches of God, he owns it all. The third thing is the righteousness of God. When we inherit the earth, it's going to be a kingdom of righteousness. The righteous will live in it and the unrighteous will be cast out of it. And what I mean here is the truly righteous are the ones who will live in it. These are not the self-righteous. These are not the ones who claim their own righteousness. That's plain enough from Jesus' teachings to the people of Israel that were mistaken about meekness. It comes to those who are righteous in Christ. The righteous will inherit the earth, and they've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Scripture says in Habakkuk 2, verse 14, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters that cover the sea. The deepest ocean of the world is not enough to contain all of the goodness, all the holiness, and all the righteousness of God. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and it's a kingdom that is reserved for those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, for this coming kingdom, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Of course, the question for you today is, are you going to be in that kingdom? Are you confused about what it means to be a meek person? Are you the kind of person that asserts your rights? You're still thinking about number one. I mean, you're at the top of the list. That's all you ever think about. A meek person is someone who realizes the holiness of God. A meek person who is one who has submitted himself to God's authority. He's under God as his authority. It means that you surrender everything you are and everything that you have to him to see fit to use as he wants to. Now, thousands came to hear Jesus. They thought that they were in the kingdom and they were ready for the kingdom. And maybe they were ready for but they weren't ready for Christ's kingdom. It was a different kingdom, a kingdom then that was not of this world. But what does the Bible say? What is the Bible teaching us? It's teaching us that you can spin that globe, let your foot, let your finger rather land on any part of that globe, and when it stops, it all belongs to you. You will inherit this kingdom. And it's not a small patch of land. It's like I have in your bulletin this morning in the article. It's not a little bitty place of land that's the size of New Jersey. It's the entire world. The meek shall inherit the earth. God's kingdom covers the entire world. Are you in Christ's kingdom? There's only one way that you can be, by faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's the only way to be truly meek and to be in his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you now. I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to some soul here today who doesn't know you. Lord, all of us, when we're born into this world, we look at ourselves. We're always looking out for number one. We care about nothing but us. To be a truly meek person, we must come under the authority of Jesus Christ. He has all the rights. And we submit ourselves completely and totally to the authority of his will. Lord, we pray that Christians here today would learn what it means to live in that kingdom to have the meekness that's described here and the being poor in spirit, mourning over our sins and the meekness to realize we must humble ourselves before a mighty God. Speak to hearts today, Lord, and we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.